So I want to say thank you this morning to Reverend Sharon and Eric for sharing much of today's sermon with me and therefore with us. Many of you have probably seen the movie The Princess Bride. The film is a story within a story. It begins with a grandfather reading a book to his sick grandson. And we see the story he is telling played out. When I was your age, the grandpa says, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick. And I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. The grandson isn't too keen at first until the grandpa assures him that the book is full of things like fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. But when he starts off the book, not with the fencing and fighting, but with the love story developing between the two main characters, the grandson interrupts him. Hold it! Hold it! What is this? Are you trying to trick me? Is this a kissing book? Song of Songs is also a special book, and it is definitely a kissing book. When we began translating in earnest in my Hebrew class, my professor told us that two of the hardest books to translate are her Job, because it's so old that we aren't always sure exactly what it says. And Song of Songs, because we know exactly what it says, and we don't talk that way in the Bible. The English versions we have are almost all cleaned up versions of, this, of the Hebrew. But even in English, it's clear that Song of Songs is sensual. People get a little nervous when they hear there's going to be some preaching on Song of Songs, wondering, well, which part? Which is perhaps why the Song of Songs rarely comes up in the lectionary and we don't talk about it all that much. But in a canon dominated by masculine perspectives, it's worth noting that a woman does the majority of the talking in this love poem. She speaks first and last, and in fact, 75% of the book is written in her voice. The woman's beloved periodically joins her in a duet, and occasionally their groups of friends chime in to function as a kind of dramatic chorus, offering commentary on what is going on. This is another one of the books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all supposedly written by Solomon, that almost didn't make the canon. The Talmud records the debate among the rabbis in the first century. Apparently, portions of Song of Songs had become a popular drinking song. But that did not stop the teacher, Rabbi Akiva, from passionately defending it. The whole world is not worth the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel, he said. For all the scriptures are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holies. 
So what is it about the Song of Songs that makes it so holy? Jews and Christians for thousands of years have tried to understand and interpret it. The first biblical commentary ever written was on the Song of Songs. And in the 13th century, St. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. But he never managed to get beyond chapter 3, verse 1 in all of his writings. The most popular interpretation of Song of Songs for much of Jewish and Christian history has been to understand the book as purely allegorical, celebrating the love between God and humanity, a mystical union of God and the soul. The part that we read today is often interpreted as Christ's love poem for the church. We even have a children's song taken from this text, his banner over us is love. More recent interpretations have taken the book more at face value as a collection of romantic poetry meant to celebrate romantic love between two people. But I think it's more like a story within a story. That the holiness of this text actually lies in holding both of those views together. And being able to see it both as a beautiful reflection of the joy of loving God and as a portrait of desire between two people. The Hebrew Bible scholar Ellen Davis describes the Song of Songs as offering us a dream of a world in which the three primary ruptures that divide us from one another, from nature and from God, are healed. In her book, Getting Involved with God, Rediscovering the Old Testament, Davis explores the book Song of Songs by first drawing our attention all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis 3. There the woman and the man have eaten from the fruit, and the rifts in relationship are immediately apparent. God comes casually walking by only to find that the man and the woman are afraid and hiding because they are naked. Who told you that you were naked, God asks. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man replies, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. So God asks the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman answers, the serpent tricked me and I ate. Humanity has barely gotten started and already they've slipped into shame and obfuscation and shifting blame to anyone but themselves. And so, because the man and woman wanted knowledge so badly, God gives it to them. God tells them what the world is really like. The crack that formed between the man and the woman, the moment he blamed her for his own actions, widens. Genesis says the woman was created to be the man's equal companion, but now she's told he will rule over her. 
They are divided first by blame and then by the imbalance of power. They are also separated from the rest of the natural world. Their relationship with the environment is now one of enmity. Humanity will scratch out the food they need to survive by toil and sweat. Finally, the intimacy between God and humanity. The ease with which God walks regularly among them is shattered. This fall of Adam and Eve is not a singular historical event. It plays out over and over again in our daily lives when we reject who we are created to be and how we are created to live in community with others. Over and over again, we find a relationship with our neighbors, our world, and our God broken. In Song of Songs, however, we see each of these three breaks healed. In Genesis 3, God tells the woman that her desire shall be for her husband, and he shall rule over her. But in Song of Songs, this imbalance is once again made right. I am my beloved's, the woman declares, and his desire is for me. In the Bible, this word that gets translated as desire is used in only these two places. So it's clear that the author is purposefully drawing this connection, directing the reader back to the Genesis text. In the beauty and wholeness of this relationship, the whole earth seems to rejoice with them. In Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18, humanity is told that because of their actions, the very ground is cursed. Although they, although they toil for food, the earth will bring forth thorns and thistles. In the Song of Songs, the couple declares, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. Without any kind of work described, flowers spring forth unbidden from the soil. The fig tree puts forth figs, and the vines blossom with a fragrance that fills the air. Humans are moved to song, and the doves join in with them. The final relationship, the one between God and humanity, is less obvious especially since God isn't directly mentioned anywhere in this book. But Davis argues that we catch a powerful glimpse of God in chapter 3. There, the woman is searching for her beloved, and she describes herself multiple times as searching for the one whom my soul loves. Davis suggests that this is meant to be heard as religious language, and may actually be a shortening of the first and greatest commandment that we are given in Deuteronomy and again by Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The one whom our souls love is God. And like the woman pining for her beloved, we love God not because of what God does for us, 
but because loving God brings us delight. Whether or not God is mentioned, see God moving throughout the Song of Songs, even if only in the way that God often moves throughout poetry, through metaphor and illusion. God is present in Song of Songs the way that God is so often present in our lives, in our deepest joy. God, after all, is not only present in our prayers, but in our play. God shows up in our love for one another, in our pleasure, in the delight we take in creation. Not only the creation that surrounds us in the natural world, but in the creation that we are, in our own dear, often maligned bodies. Perhaps you, like the grandson from The Princess Bride, feel like interrupting here to say, hold it, hold it. What is this? So what kind of book is this? What kind of life is the life of faith? What is it? So there's a cartoonist who draws a little comic called The Adventures of the Holy Ghost that I enjoy. In one of his comics, a squirrel is reading the newspaper and asks, why would God make a broken world with all this evil? In the next panel, the Holy Ghost hovers over flowers, tenderly holding a butterfly, and asks, why would God make a broken world with all this beauty? Sometimes, as a preacher, I find it necessary to name the evil that is at work in our world. But I also always want to remind you, and myself, that there is beauty and good at work in the world. And that also needs to be named. Yeah, there is genuine evil in the world. It must be seen and named and fought against. But we also have to believe, not just with our heads, but with our entire beings, that the beauty in this broken world is worth fighting for. God thinks so. The Song of Songs thinks so. The Bible reminds us that the world around us every day is full of fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, and chases but it is also full of escapes and true love and miracles. So when the evil of the world feels overwhelming, fall in love a little. Fall in love with a person, fall in love with the world, fall in love with God. Smell the flowers and sing the love songs and don't skip the kissing parts. God wrote those parts too. Amen.